G'day and welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and I'm going to start this case with a warning. This case involves disturbing details of abuse and murder, so you might prefer to skip this one and join me for one of my less violent cases. This case is also very long, but I promise it's worth it. Because it is so long, I've broken it up into chapters to let you know what I'm focusing on as we go along. You may have heard of child grooming, but you might not be familiar with the term elder grooming. Child grooming is the befriending and establishing an emotional connection with a child in order to lower their inhibitions with the objective of sexual abuse. When talking about elder grooming, the groomer will identify an older person who is vulnerable, isolated, or is losing capacity or has lost capacity. They'll identify them and then they'll target them. They will embed themselves into the older person's life in the guise of a friend, a carer, or a romantic partner and they do this with the primary aim of gaining a financial benefit. It might be that they hope to persuade the older person to give them gifts, or for the older person to to relinquish control of the finances in a way that allows the groomer to help themselves to money or property. This can be done under a power of attorney, but it can also be done without one. The groomer might take advantage of the older person's diminishing capacity, so they don't notice what the groomer is doing, and so they are more pliable to suggestions and directions. Or the groomer might be playing a long game, hoping that the older person will leave their money or property in their will, or at least intending to make a family provision claim against the estate. Sorry for throwing in some legal jargon there, let me explain. A family provision claim is an application by an eligible person to the Supreme Court, arguing that they should receive a share or a larger share of a deceased person's property. If the court agrees, they may order that the estate pay that person. In this context, it means the older person may have a will that leaves everything to family or friends or a charity, but the groomer may apply to the court, may be claiming to be a de facto partner, seeking to get some money from the estate. These people may fulfil a role of friend and carer, so they might provide companionship and care to the older person. They can help them with chores, drive them to appointments and give the appearance of affection. This performance has several benefits for the groomer. It encourages the older person to trust and rely on the groomer. This in turn can lead the older person to feel appreciative and indebted, like they owe the groomer something back, which may take the form of gifts. It cuts out the need for other people to act as carer, such as family members and friends and even community services, and can isolate the older person from those people, so that they don't feel that there are really any other one out there who could be their carer. It allows the groomer to exert more control over the older person's life because they know everything the older person is doing and they can control what the older person does. Elder grooming appears to be increasing as though people have realised that this is an easy way to make money. They see it as a way to make quick financial gain, to identify and target an older person. But while we are hearing of more cases of elder grooming, it is still hard to identify because on the face of it, all you may see is a carer providing assistance and companionship to an older person. And isn't that something that you would want to see? But underneath, there are these selfish motives and abusive methods, such as isolating the older person, manipulating their emotions and taking control of their life. 
I'm not saying this applies to all carers. I have the highest respect for people who act as carers and the huge responsibilities and obligations that they take on. The problem is, is that carers and groomers can often look the same. The difference is that some are kind, loving and responsible carers and the others are selfish frauds. The case I'm looking at today has all the appearance of a groomer who identified an older person without any relatives and sought to be that person's carer. They chose their victim wrong, because this lady was still very independent and she didn't want or need a carer. And somehow, this led the wannabe carer to kill the older person. Chapter 1, The Background Before I dive into the background, I want to apologise because I suspect I'm going to mispronounce some of these names. I did look them up on the internet, but let's see how I go. Vonnie Isabel McGlynn was 83 years old. She lived alone at 6 Summerfield Avenue, Rinella, a suburb in Adelaide. She was independent, intelligent, quite active for her age, and in reasonable good health. She was a feisty woman who didn't tolerate fools or gossip. She was described as a private person who travelled frequently. Her house was always neat and tidy, although she didn't often allow visitors in. Vonnie's brother, Donald Smallwood, described his sister as reserved, independent, and very tight with money. According to him, Vonnie still had the same fridge in her kitchen that had been purchased for her in 1958. Donald lived in Queensland and spoke with his sister from time to time on the phone. He also arranged for Vonnie to receive a daily call from a Red Cross service called Telecross. Telecross is a service which provides an older person with a daily telephone call to check on their well-being. This provides peace of mind if they are at risk of an accident or illness that may go unnoticed, such as falling and being unable to call for help. The volunteer caller will check to see if they are well and provide a friendly voice to wake up to each morning. It is a great service that always needs volunteers, so if you're looking for a good deed or if you're the type that likes to chat, I suggest you check it out. Though so Donald had arranged for Vonnie to be receiving a telecross phone call every morning. Vonnie was frequently seen by her neighbours walking to and from the nearby shops or pottering in her garden. She would often walk to McDonald's for breakfast. She was on good terms with her neighbours. They would do favours for each other as good neighbours do and Vonnie would let them know when she was going on holidays so that they could keep an eye on the house for her. In August 2008, Vonnie broke her arm, and her neighbour Sharon assisted her by driving her to and from her medical appointments. After the break, Vonnie arranged for Meals on Wheels to deliver meals to her and for someone to help her with showering. During one of the trips to the medical centre, Sharon said that she had a conversation with Vonnie in which Vonnie told her that there was a young woman who knew that Vonnie had broken her arm and wanted to be her carer. Vonnie said she didn't need a carer and, according to Sharon, was quite annoyed by the young woman. Sometime in November, Vonnie had a phone conversation with an old neighbour, Therese Malloy, who had moved away but stayed in contact. Vonnie told Therese how a woman had come to her home and frightened her. The story Vonnie gave was that this woman who lived in the street had come to her house and told her, ''You need a carer. I want to be your carer. You can pay me and I can move in.'' Vonnie refused. Therese said that Vonnie seemed upset by what had happened and advised her to tell the police. Donald, Vonnie's brother, also remembered having a conversation with Vonnie in which she told him that someone had come around banging on her front screen door. Because of the banging, Vonnie was scared to answer. The person went to the side window and banged on it, then went around the back of the house and banged on the back door, before finally coming back to the front door again. 
This time Vonnie answered. She opened the door a little, but left the chain on the hook. There was a young woman at the door who said, I'm here to be your carer. Vonnie said, I don't need one, thank you very much. And the woman said, yes you do and I can do the job. At this point, Vonnie closed the door. When she told Donald about this incident, she said that the woman was from down the street. On the 2nd of December 2008, Vonnie spoke with the Telecross volunteers sometime between 7am and 9am. On the same day, Sharon saw Vonnie pottering around in her front yard. On 3rd of December, Vonnie had her scheduled conversation with the Telecross volunteer at 8.45am. The next day, Telecross made their usual call to Vonnie, but nobody answered the call. When their calls continued to go unanswered, the Red Cross contacted the police. Chapter 2. The Search On receiving the call from the Red Cross, police attended the property on the 4th of December at 10.26am. When no one answered the door, police officer Constable Riding broke a window at the rear of the property and climbed in. He observed that there was a hole in the ceiling where the manhole cover should be. So, I didn't realise that a manhole could be anything other than that hole in the road that leads down to sewers. Uh, but I've looked it up and it's also the name for little movable panels and ceilings that give access to the roof space. Constable Riding went through every room and noticed filled plastic bags in one of the bedrooms. He described the house as tidy, which will become important later. Another officer, Sergeant Brewer, arrived at the home just before 1pm. He did not go inside but popped a card through the letterbox to let the resident know that police had entered the house and damaged the rear window. I guess when Constable Riding got back to the station, they must have begun to think about what would happen if this little old lady had just popped out for an errand and come back to find her back window smashed in. They better leave a note so she didn't report it as a crime. It would be pretty embarrassing if they had to go, ah, yeah, nah, that was us. At 9.50pm that night, three police officers attended the home after the neighbours reported that the front door was open. Constable Williams went through every room and the house was much messier, as if in the process of being packed up. There were filled plastic bags on the floor and it was clear that someone had also been in the house, sometime in the 11 hours since Constable Riding had gone through the house that morning. Sergeant Brewer went back to the house the next day at 11am. He didn't go inside but checked the letterbox and saw that the police calling card was still there. Later that day, at 7.30pm, the three police officers returned to the house. The police card was still on the floor but there was now a letter as well. Roger Zaddo, who is the husband of the neighbour Sharon Zaddo, who I mentioned earlier, drew their attention to the fact that some of the roof tiles were missing and he asked for permission to restore them. They allowed him to replace the roof tiles and to board up the window Constable Riding had broken in through the day before. It sounds like this Roger was a pretty good neighbour. On Saturday 6th of December, one of the constables returned to the home and saw that the police card was still on the floor but the letter was missing. So this unknown person has again entered the property and disturbed the scene. A couple of days later, police return again. They climb on the roof to enter the home the way they suspected this unknown person was getting into the house, but they didn't find any useful evidence in the ceiling. Six days after Vonnie went missing, on the 9th of December, a young woman called Angelica Gavare went into the bank with a power of attorney. The power of attorney was supposedly signed by Vonnie on the 11th of November 2008, just three weeks before she went missing. Angelica tried to use the power of attorney to withdraw $2,000 from Vonnie's bank account. 
Fortunately, the bank employee had seen the news reports that Vonnie was missing, and she called the police. She put Angelica on the phone with the police, and Constable Ferrero asked her why she was withdrawing money from that account. Angelica explained that she was a friend of Vonnie, and helped Vonnie with odd jobs around the house. She said that Vonnie had asked her to withdraw the money to do some renovations on the house. When asked if she knew Vonnie was missing, Angelica said no. Angelica said the last time she saw Vonnie was on the 27th of November at Vonnie's house. She said that Vonnie was planning to go travelling and had asked her to do renovations while she was gone. The next day, police searched Angelica's house at 72 Scottsglade Road, Christie Downs. They were investing the matter as a possible fraud. Chapter 3. The Suspect So who is this woman, Angelica Guevara? Angelica was born in Latvia in 1973, and she gave birth to her first daughter in 1998. In 2001, Angelica and her daughter moved to Australia. She began a relationship with Giuseppe Daniele in January 2005, and they had a daughter together. In 2005 and up to May 2006, Angelica and her two daughters lived with Angelica's mother at Summerfield Avenue, Rainella, only a short distance from Vonnie McGlynn's home. Angelica and the girls moved in with Giuseppe in May 2006, but they didn't stay long, moving out in July when the couple broke up. Shortly after that, Angelica bought her home at Scottsglade Road, Christie Downs, and moved in in August 2006. In 2008, Angelica had been working at a news agency but was dismissed for stealing a credit card. She was also studying accounting at TAFE. She was still a student at the time of Vonnie's death and even sat for an exam on the day of the murder. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Um, at this stage, no one even knows that there is a murder. As of the 9th of December 2008, Angelica is suspected of fraud, and only that. Angelica told police that Vonnie had asked her to arrange for some renovations to be done on Vonnie's house while she was on holiday. She said the $2,000 she had tried to withdraw from Vonnie's bank account was to pay for some of that work. Angelica said that the house had been a little messy the last time she had visited and denied that she had begun to pack up the house. She agreed that at some time she had asked to be Vonnie's carer and that Vonnie had refused. When asked whether she had any of Vonnie's property in her house, Angelica said she didn't. The reason that was important was because the police found in Angelica's house a little Balinese table and toaster oven that belonged to Vonnie, as well as Vonnie's passport and pension card, the keys to Vonnie's house and some other items. When asked what she thinks might have happened to Vonnie, Angelica said, and I quote, Phew, shoo, parade, just, and what happened? That age, you know, like old people, they just wander off. I don't know for sure if she said it like that, but it's kind of hard to read that sentence. Given that Angelica's behaviour was suspicious and her story didn't quite sound right, the police looked into her further and they found some interesting things. The search history on Angelica's computer showed that she had looked up previous murders, how DNA works and the Land Titles Office website. On the 4th of December, the day that Vonnie went missing, Angelica had tried to access Vonnie's bank account online but was unsuccessful. The next day, Angelica called the Salvation Army. She said she was Isabella McGlynn and she arranged for the collection of furniture from Vonnie's house. You may remember that Isabella is Vonnie's middle name. On the 8th of December, Angelica called the local council and using the name Mrs V McGlynn arranged for the collection of rubbish from Vonnie's house. 
So, in the immediate days after Vonnie's disappearance, Angelica looked to be clearing out the house and preparing to sell it. This is indicative of something far worse than fraud. Immediately after Vonnie goes missing, Angelica is taking steps to clear out the house and sell it. Why would she do all that unless she knew she wouldn't get caught? She knew she wouldn't get caught because she knew that Vonnie wasn't missing, she was dead. And she knew that Vonnie was dead because she had killed her. On the 6th of January 2009, Angelica was informed that she was considered to be a suspect in the murder of Vonnie. Police searched the areas around Vonnie's and Angelica's homes for any evidence. Directly across the road from Angelica's house, there's a bike path, Christy Downs Creek running alongside the road, and a lot of shrub and bush. I've included a link to a news report in the notes that shows just how close the creek is to Angelica's house. The police searched around the front of Angelica's house last, because as one officer said, it was really unlikely that you would dispose of those remains directly in front of your house. Unlikely, but in this case not impossible. On the 23rd of February 2009, almost three months after Vonnie had gone missing, police found partial remains of Vonnie in the Christie's Downs Creek area across the road from Angelica's house. Vonnie's body had been dismembered with the head, arms and legs removed from the torso with a saw-like instrument. They never found the head or hands. The cause of death could not be determined because the body parts were so severely decomposed. The body parts were in different areas along the creek and they also found pieces of a statue that had belonged to Vonnie. Two days later, police found a child stroller in some bushes adjacent to the bikeway in the Christie's Creek area near Scott's Glade Road. The discovery was on the evening news and was seen by Angelica's sister, Agnes Dombrovska. Agnes thought that the stroller looked familiar and called police. She said it looked like one of the many strollers her mum owned and she would sometimes borrow it to take her children to the playground near her mother's home. She recognised it because her mother's stroller had a screw missing underneath the stroller across the joint wheels with the result that the lower beam was had dangling down. This matched the stroller that was found at the creek. Agnes's mother, Inara Dombrovska, had lived just down the street from Vonnie's home at 20 Summerfield Avenue, where she had run the family daycare business from her house. Inara wasn't able to confirm that the stroller had been one of hers because she had a few, but she did say that both of her daughters, Agnes and Angelica, had borrowed the strollers whenever they needed to. DNA was recovered from the seat of the stroller that was consistent with Vonnie's DNA, leading to the conclusion that some of Vonnie's remains had been transported to the creek using the stroller. DNA was also found in the boot of Angelica's car that was a partial match to Vonnie. A few witnesses gave evidence of seeing Angelica pushing a child's pram to the creek with plastic bags in the seat around the time of Vonnie's disappearance, or seeing someone of Angelica's description near the creek at that time, but their evidence wasn't really reliable. Chapter 4. The Trial Angelica Gavare was charged with murdering Vonnie on or about 3rd of December 2008 at Vonnie's home in Ranella. Angelica pleaded not guilty. We need to remember that it is not Angelica's job to prove that she is innocent. It is the job of the prosecution to prove, beyond reasonable doubt, that she committed the crime. If they cannot do that, then she should not be found guilty. I think we can sometimes forget this, being so used to TV dramas and movies where the innocent party hunts down evidence to prove their innocence, even trying to identify the real murderer themselves. 
but that isn't what happens in real life. Angelica doesn't have to prove that she's innocent, it's up to the prosecution to prove that she is guilty. For a conviction of murder, the prosecution must prove the acts of Angelica caused the death of Vonnie. The acts of Angelica were conscious and voluntary, not the result of an accident. The acts were carried out with the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. And the acts were without any lawful justification, such as self-defence. The prosecution's case was that sometime during the day, on the 3rd of December, Angelica battered Vonnie with one of her own statues. She returned later that evening and used a hacksaw to dismember Vonnie's body. She put the body parts in the boot of her car and sometime later used the stroller to transport the body parts and the statue to the creek near her home and dump them, with the hope that animals would eat the remains. Her motive was to gain a financial benefit. She took steps to sell Vonnie's home and access her bank account, using a forged power of attorney. The defence case. Angelica's argument was that she did not kill Vonnie. She only sought to take advantage of Vonnie's death to get some money after she found out about it. In South Australia, a murder conviction results in an automatic life sentence with a mandatory 20-year non-parole period. This is the possible sentence that Angelica was facing. Chapter 5. The Witnesses At trial, there was evidence from Vonnie's brother and neighbours, from the Red Cross staff she spoke to daily, and even from staff at her local McDonald's. The most surprising person to give evidence for the prosecution was Angelica's mother. Inara Dombrovska was called to give evidence against her daughter. The trial had to be adjourned to allow Inara to get legal advice and to arrange for a Latvian interpreter. Newspapers reported that Inara walked through the court to the witness box without even glancing at her daughter. Inara knew that Vonnie lived on the same street, although they never spoke to each other except to say hello every now and then. On the 3rd of December, the day that Vonnie went missing, Inara went to a restaurant with her family to celebrate her Angelica's birthday. She said that she returned home before 9pm. Not long after that day, Angelica called Inara and asked her to come to her home and watch the kids. When Inara arrived, the police were at the house and they took Angelica away to the police station for questioning. When Angelica finally got back to the home, Inara asked her what was going on and Angelica said it was about stealing. Inara didn't ask any more questions because she was aware of other instances in which Angelica had stolen things and she was disappointed in her daughter. Inara testified about a conversation she had with Angelica at Agnes's house on Christmas Eve. Angelica told her that she had been watching Vonnie's house for some time, that she had gotten into the house through the roof when Vonnie was at McDonald's and she had waited for Vonnie to return. Then she had made Vonnie unconscious and searched the house. Angelica doesn't really explain what this means when she says that she made Vonnie unconscious. Angelica said that she left the house but returned later that evening and wrapped Vonnie in plastics and sheets and took her out of the city. She said that she was certain police would never find the body. According to Inara, Angelica had said sarcastically, Yeah, Mum, I climbed through the roof and hit her over the head and put her in the backyard. Inara had seen a news story on TV about how Vonnie was missing and Angelica had tried to access her bank accounts. When she asked Angelica about this, Angelica said that she had forged a power of attorney that she was going to sell Vonnie's house and buy another one. Inara said that she was in shock hearing this. She couldn't imagine that her daughter would kill Vonnie. It was too much for her to take in and she asked Angelica to leave. 
On the 5th of January, Angelica told her mother that what she had said before was not true. Basically saying, you know how a couple of days ago I said I killed someone? Well, nah, that wasn't true, I was just joking. Not in those words, but that's the gist. The court described this odd conversation as Angelica doing damage control when she realised that she had already told her mother too much. The judge said she was impressed with Inara as a witness and found her to be believable. She said that while it was obvious that the experience of giving evidence was difficult for Inara, her testimony had been factual, unemotional and consistent. Amanda Patterson also gave evidence at the trial. Amanda had at one time been Angelica's cellmate. According to Amanda, Angelica said that she had been Vonnie's carer and when Vonnie tried to end the relationship, she had killed her. She seemed convinced that if the police could not find the head or the hands, then they would not be able to make the case against her. Angelica told Amanda that on that night she had put the children to bed, driven over to Vonnie's house, taken Vonnie by surprise, put the body in the boot of her car and driven away. Amanda also said that Angelica found the murder erotic and a bit of a turn-on. This is only what Amanda claims that Angelica told her. It is important to note that Amanda had a, a record of dishonesty and appears to have fabricated evidence during the trial. She also gained a lighter sentence on her own crime for testifying against Angelica, so the judge was not prepared to believe Amanda's evidence. Chapter 6. The Twist Angelica's behaviour at the trial was described as odd. For example, when they showed video recordings of her interview with police, she would laugh at the jokes she had made during those interviews. But even more odd was the twist. For years, Angelica had stuck with her story, that Vonnie had asked her to renovate her house and that she had nothing to do with Vonnie's murder. But at trial, she had a new version of events. She said that her ex-lover, Giuseppe Danielli, had hit Vonnie in a car crash. Giuseppe had come to Angelica's house and forced her to follow him to Vonnie's house. When they entered the house, Vonnie was sitting on the sofa with blood on her head and clothes. Angelica felt for a pulse but couldn't feel one. She and Giuseppe moved Vonnie's body to the pavement outside. Angelica claimed that Giuseppe wanted to make it look like a robbery and forced her to take items from the house, including the little table, the toaster oven, Vonnie's passport and pension card and the house keys. She also claimed that Giuseppe threatened to kill her and her family if she went to the police. Angelica said it was only after she got back home and looked at some of the items she had taken that it occurred to her that she could use the situation for her benefit. That was what led her to forge the power of attorney and try to withdraw money from Vonnie's bank account. She also thought she might transfer Vonnie's house into her name. When she was asked why she lied to police, she said that once she started lying, she found it hard to stop. Giuseppe was blown away by this accusation and laughed that it was ludicrous when questioned during the trial. He and Angelica were hardly on speaking terms at that time. She had started litigation against him, claiming he had assaulted her in June 2008. He also had an alibi for the night of the 3rd of December 2008. He had been at his nephew's birthday party between 4.30 and 10pm and his sister confirmed it. The prosecution argued that Angelica only came up with this story because she realised that her previous lies wouldn't hold up in court, and also to stop Giuseppe winning a custody battle over their children. The judge found Giuseppe to be persuasive and truthful. Even though she didn't have to, Angelica gave evidence herself. She denied killing Vonnie and put forward this story putting all of the blame on Giuseppe. 
Angelica admitted that she had been dismissed from previous employment for dishonesty. She had stolen a co-worker's credit card and used it to buy things. She had also forged powers of attorneys in the past, and this is what made her think that she could get something out of this situation with Vonnie. The judge found Angelica's new account of what happened to be inherently improbable. Chapter 7. Lies I think it is important to point out at this stage, as the court did, that the fact that a person lies isn't alone confirmation that they committed the crime. It is a natural tendency of people under suspicion to try and distance themselves from the person or events connected with the crime. So you might refer to your mate Dan as a close friend and drinking buddy, but when police are questioning you in relation to a crime Dan committed, you might try to downplay any connection, say that he's a guy you know and you've had drinks with him a few times but always with other people. It's normal to try to distance yourself from bad behaviour and criminal offences. So while it's normal to distrust a person who has lied, it is also not unusual for people to lie in these types of situations, and the court knows not to draw any inference from the fact that the accused has lied without any other evidence. The fact that Angelica lied is not proof that she committed the crime. Chapter 8. The Verdict Angelica was found guilty of the murder of Vonnie McGlynn. The court found that in this case it is only logical that the person who dismembered and disposed of the body was also the person who killed Vonnie. Justice Trish Kelly stated that, and I quote, This is not a case of an assault which went too far, or a robbery interrupted which had unintended consequences. The totality of the evidence points to the conclusion, and I so conclude, that the accused wanted Mrs McGlynn's house and she wanted her money. There is no other reasonable explanation for the evidence I accept in this case, other than that the accused killed Miss McGlynn. End quote. The court can take into consideration any relevant factors when determining whether they should give a lighter sentence, but Justice Trish Kelly said, I quote, Notwithstanding the fact that you have been privileged to receive the best legal representation money could buy, there is barely a thing which your counsel could say on your behalf which would provide any sort of mitigation of the circumstances of your crime. End quote. Basically saying that all the best lawyers couldn't make what she did any less horrendous. Justice Kelly also noted that Angelica had shown no remorse or contrition and did not even have the decency to provide some small solace to the family by divulging where she had disposed of the head in the hands. She also said, and I quote, It would be a small comfort perhaps to be able to conclude that your actions were the product of madness. Unfortunately, they appeared to be nothing more than the actions of a greedy, narcissistic and deceitful woman, completely devoid of any moral insight or empathy. End quote. I think it's safe to say that Justice Kelly didn't really think much of Angelica. Angelica was sentenced to imprisonment for life with a non-parole period of 32 years. A lot of people were happy with the outcome. Outside the court, old friend Therese Malloy said, quote, If she was here now, we would be going out for a party. She was a really happy and beautiful person. She loved family life. She was part of our family. We miss her very much. End quote. Detective Superintendent Grant Moyle said that the police were pleased with the outcome and that the sentence sends a clear message to any people thinking to do something similar, that there will be consequences. (music) 
Chapter 9. No Jury You might have noticed that I haven't mentioned a jury. That is because this matter was heard by a judge alone. Angelica made an application to be tried by a judge alone. Her reason was that around the time of the trial, there had been media attention to cases involving the murder of older vulnerable women, including the murder of Vonnie McGlynn. Because of this publication, it would be difficult to get an impartial jury that would make a decision on the evidence before the court and not be influenced by anything they had read in the media. Ultimately, it determined that the trial was heard and determined by a single judge. Chapter 10. The Appeal Angelica appealed the decision on several grounds. One of the grounds of the appeal was that the evidence didn't rule out that the death could have been accidental or manslaughter. After all, they didn't have the head or the hands, and they weren't able to determine what caused the death. So she was saying they couldn't rule out that it could have been an accident. A really basic explanation of the difference between murder and manslaughter. Murder is when someone deliberately causes the death of another person while at the same time intending to cause death or grievous bodily harm. If the person didn't have the intention to cause death or grievous bodily harm, if they had other intentions but their actions resulted in the death instead, then it may be considered to be manslaughter. Angelica's lawyers argued that there was not enough evidence to prove that she had the intent to kill Bonnie, especially as they were unable to determine the exact cause of death. They argued that all of the evidence related to events that happened after the death, so you couldn't say what intentions there were in the lead-up to the death. The Court of Appeal found that there were a number of factors that go to show that there was the intention to kill. 1. She told her mother that she was watching Vonnie for a while, and that she broke into the roof and waited for Vonnie to come home. If she had been watching for a while, she would have known how long Vonnie usually takes at McDonald's. She could have entered the house, stolen what she wanted, and be gone by the time Vonnie came home. There was no need to wait. 2. Her entry through the roof. If she only intended to steal, why not just break in through a window? The reason to go through the roof was so that Vonnie would not know she was in the house, and she could surprise her. 3. When Angelica spoke with her mother about what happened, she never said that it was an accidental killing, and in the stories that she gave police and to court, she didn't argue an accidental killing. 4. The forged power of attorney was dated 11th November 2008, so obviously she lied about only deciding to take advantage after Vonnie died. This suggests that she thought about the murder in advance, preparing the power of attorney weeks before she killed Vonnie, and the only way she could use the power of attorney to sell Vonnie's house was if Vonnie was dead. The Court of Appeal found that these factors taken together proved beyond reasonable doubt that Angelica had the intention to kill Vonnie. Therefore, the verdict of murder, rather than manslaughter, was appropriate. One of her arguments was that the evidence was largely circumstantial. The court agreed with this, but also quoted the original judge, that the totality of the circumstantial evidence is as powerful as any direct evidence could ever be. Angelica also appealed on the basis that her sentence was manifestly excessive, arguing that Justice Kelly had put too much importance on the way in which the body was disposed of that given her young age and no prior violent criminal background, as well as the fact that she had two daughters, she should have been given a shorter non-parole period. The appeal court merely said that the judge had not taken into account any irrelevant matter and had dealt with all relevant sentencing considerations. Therefore, the sentence was not manifestly excessive. 
appeal dismissed. Chapter 11. The Second Appeal Angelica applied to the High Court for special leave to appeal the decision of the Supreme Court. She made this application late. You are given a time frame in which you can appeal a decision, and her reason for being late was that it was difficult to make the application while she was in custody. Her argument to the High Court was that, 1. Her mother was pressured into giving evidence and that evidence should have been excluded. The court referred to the fact that the previous court proceedings had been adjourned to allow her mother to get advice about her right to apply to be excused from giving evidence. When they returned to the court the next day, Angelica's mother had said she didn't want to be excused from giving evidence. So she wasn't pressured into giving evidence in this case. 2. Angelica also tried to argue against the facts that she had previously agreed to in the Supreme Court hearing. This was inconsistent with how she had previously argued her case, and you can't waste the court's time by coming back with a different argument. So ultimately, her appeal was dismissed. probably one of the longest cases I've done so far, but I hope you still found it interesting. I hope you stuck with it. Um, so you may be asking, what's the difference between elder abuse and murder? Elder abuse is any harm to an older person caused by someone they trust. This harm can include all types of criminal behaviour, so it can be both elder abuse and murder. With elder abuse, at the core of it is a person taking advantage of an older person who may be vulnerable and dependent on others. Older persons are more vulnerable to certain types of crime because of age, health problems, capacity issues, reliance on others for care, and the level of control other people can have over the older person. In this case, it was the older person's resistance to controlling behaviour that led to her murder. I want to end by tying back to what I mentioned at the very beginning – that elder grooming happens, that people target older people with the aim of embedding themselves in their lives in order to gain a financial benefit. Fonnie was targeted as a potential victim for grooming, but she ended up being the victim of a murder instead. To quote the court in this case, she was the unsuspecting victim of a calculated criminal with whom she did not have a relationship of trust or dependence, although it was the initial intention of her attacker to develop such a relationship as her carer, end quote. When Angelica realised that she couldn't groom Vonnie to suit her purpose, she's decided to kill her instead. That was the case of the Crown versus Gavare. Um, the citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to me at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. That is elderservice one word, at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. If anything I've covered today has triggered something, or if you've identified or are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1800 353 374, or if you are on the Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02 4324 5611.